Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mastering engineer Ron McMaster. First of all, Spotify fake artists. A few months ago, I told you the story about Spotify's fake artists. Now, what happened is, on a bunch of ambient-style playlists, like Peaceful Piano and Deep Focus, Sleep, Music for Concentration, Ambient Chill. So it turns out in those particular playlists, there were some artists on there that nobody recognized that were getting a huge number of streams. So people began to check it out, and what they discovered was they were all done by the same Stockholm production house called Epidemic Sound. And after more digging, it turns out that these songs were all licensed at a lower rate by Spotify and then given fake names. So as a result, Spotify was making more money. To make things even worse, legit artists in the genre like Brian Eno and John Hopkins, Bibio, people like that were big losers because 90% of the artists on the playlist were fake and especially major labels, all of their artists were almost completely frozen out. So while everyone complained about it, Spotify said it was going to change things, it doesn't seem like it's changed after a few months. So now the major labels are going to Apple Music and they're saying, we're going to give you an exclusive for an alternative ambient playlist, and it's called Peaceful Music. Already the ambient playlists are doing well, on Apple Music. Today's Chill is one. Chill House is number 60 out of all their playlists. Piano Chill is number 64. So a lot of people really like ambient music and use it for all sorts of different things. Use it for background music, use it for relaxing, use it for meditating, all those things. But imagine now if you're an indie artist doing that, and let's face it, a lot of them are, and suddenly you can't even get on Spotify because Spotify's own artists are taking up all the slots in the playlist. Well, now you might have a chance because Apple Music is looking at this a little bit harder and they're being very proactive about it. So I can see why Spotify did this. I don't know that it's something that anyone would condone, but obviously they want to make money because now that they're public, they have to make money. That doesn't mean it's right, and now Apple Music, among others, are going to try to rectify the situation. So if you want that kind of music, you can help out your fellow artists by just listening to it on Apple Music alone. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and is the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Charts. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a music store near you. And again, thank you all for your support. <laughs> Now, another thing I mentioned a few months ago are the imports, the musical and pro audio imports. And we know a lot of those devices, a lot of those instruments come from outside the country. And everyone was wondering what was going to happen when the Trump duties kicked in. Well, we really don't know for sure because that just happened. But one thing we do know is that already things were actually taking a downturn 
on the import market. Music Trades, who tracks this stuff pretty closely, found that most categories were down last quarter as far as the imports were concerned. The only thing that was up in musical instruments were ukuleles and acoustic guitars priced over $299. Now, in pro audio, power amps are way down by about 29%, while microphones are up by 46%. When they traced it back, they found that Gibson was a lot of the cause on the instrument side. And the reason why was the company entered into bankruptcy. And when that happened, all the overseas suppliers curtailed their shipments, at least in the short term. Now, Gibson seems to be back on track, even though they're still in bankruptcy and they probably won't be out until sometime in September. But that being said, it looks like sales and operations are back to where they were before. Now for the bad news, the Trump trade duties kicked in on July 6th. There's a 25% duty on aluminum and circuit boards. And on August 23rd, another 25% went on musical instruments and accessories like cases and tuners and cables and effects pedals and even wireless products. So we don't know what the quarter is going to bring, but it's looking more and more like imports are going to be way down or prices are going to go way up. So don't be surprised if you go to the store or you go online to buy something that you really need and it's a lot more expensive than it is today. So it's probably best go and buy now because pretty soon you might be surprised at the price. Ron McMaster recently retired from Capitol Records Mastering after 38 years with the company. During that time, he specialized in cutting vinyl and mastered a wide variety of genres and artists that include everything from Frank Sinatra to George Harrison, Radiohead, Beach Boys, and the Rolling Stones. That said, his vinyl work with the Blue Note catalog has become prized by both jazz and audiophile listeners on a par with the great Rudy Van Gelder. Believe it or not, Ron just signed a deal with Jack White's Third Man Records for a record that he did as a drummer with his band Public Nuisance in 1968, proving that you're never too old if the music is good. During the interview, Ron talked about the changes in mastering over the years, the resurgence of vinyl, and about some very cool projects that he's mastered. We spoke via phone from his home in Los Angeles. I want to go back to the beginning with you. How did you get into mastering? Because... That's not really something, especially when you started, that people aspired to or even knew about, for that matter. So how did it happen to you? Well, uh, I used to, uh, I was a drummer, and I played drums in, in a band, and then I did some studio work. And uh, when I, back in the day when I was doing this, this is back in the 70s, um, there were all the little studios, the smaller studios, you know, like a gold star or sound recorders, which was one I was associated with. Uh, they all had small disc cutting rooms and uh, would cut acetates for clients and everything like that. So uh, I saw this and I, it, it fascinated me and I thought, well, that, I'd like to do something like that. You know, it was just had a more of a variety. I don't kind of have the personality to, uh, be a mixer or, or a tracking engineer. I, I, uh, I wanted to more of a variety and more of a turnaround. So that's how I, I started seeing it. And then a good friend of mine was working at A&M records, uh, in the evening, uh, in, in the late seventies. And, uh, the, he was cutting parts for Bernie when Bernie was still over there. And, uh, I would go over there at night and watch him cut and learn. You learned from Bernie. No, I didn't learn from Bernie. I learned from Bob Carboni. He was uh, Bernie's cutting engineer. He was he cut Bernie's parts. 
Ah. Bernie would do the EQ during the day, day and then have the notes and everything for what the client approved, and then they would cut the cut the parts at night. So when did you get your first gig? When did I get uh, in mastering? Yeah. Uh, would have, it was in 1980. Actually, the same person, my friend Bob at A&M, was working with a client, and he was, uh, at the end of his session, uh, the guy uh, asked him if he knew of anybody that was apprenticing. They couldn't afford a hotshot uh, disc-cutting engineer, uh, but they needed somebody to help them out over at their studio, which uh, was United Artists. And, um, that's how I got, uh, you know, Bob said, you got to call this guy. And so I called him and went over and interviewed and got the job. So, cause I had, by this time I had been, uh, studying and sitting around and learning how to cut a record for about a year plus. So, um, I went in as an apprentice and, uh, uh, that's how I got started. And then a little bit later, the company uh, United Artists was purchased by EMI. And so, you know, which with that, that was the United Artists. So it had the Liberty records catalog. It had the blue note and it had world Pacific jazz and all those labels. So that was all acquired by EMI. And then that's how I fell under the EMI blanket. Ah, I get it now. Okay. So do you remember the first disc that you cut? First disc that I cut, uh, I actually do remember it. It was uh, it was an interview record. T Rex Mark is Mark Bolin. Oh, okay. An, and Mark Bolin inter, Mark Bolin interview record, and uh, that was the first record that I cut as a cutting engineer, where I had a client that came in. It wasn't just doing some production, uh, you know, production work. The this was this was a. Uh, a full on session. So, and if, in fact, I still know that gentleman today, he was at my retirement party a few weeks back. Oh, cool. Yeah. When CDs first came in, did you get into that right away or did you keep cutting vinyl? Uh, no, they, uh, we got into it right away. I mean, I, we were still cutting vinyl, but, um, but all of the labels, all of the, all of the companies were, um, frantically, uh, training all the engineers how to how to make a CD, how to operate the digital equipment, and I can clearly remember, uh, you know, going to different classes and things that Sony would put on, uh, and everybody was frantically taking notes and learning how to operate, you know, the 1610, 1630 machines, and uh, transferring uh, analog to digital and and working in that format. So it was. It was kind of a mad rush at the time because the um, you know, the label, uh, you know, like all the other labels, uh, our label, they wanted to get everything. They saw this new format coming and they wanted to get everything out on CD. So it was a matter of, you know, huge orders of re huge requests of let's get this, let's get that. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty frantic. How did you find it after cutting nice, warm sounding analog? And then all of a sudden you go into digital, which has a different sound, a different feel and, and a different working process. What was that like for you? Uh, well, it was an adjustment. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was very different. Um, uh, it was, it was new to all of us. So I can't say that in, you know, because the rest of the guys kind of felt the same way. Uh, uh, they had worked either in, in 
always in the analog format, whether they were disc cutting or making transfers or you know production copies or things like that. So um, it was all very different. Uh, you know the the sound and and just getting used to the levels that you could put on the, the you know there were so um, the limitations were so much less than they. Uh, were with vinyl that you could do certain things and get away with them that uh, that's the part that was kind of I remember all of us kind of being in awe of oh we can do that we can raise the level there a little bit and and uh, you know you weren't limited to let's say if you were mastering a vinyl record on a 23 minute side you certainly have a uh, level limitation and uh, you didn't have that when when it came to uh, doing a digital master but that being said again it's a whole new way of working and I, I can remember 1630s i'm not a mastering engineer but i have lots of friends that were and i remember back to those days and going in and thinking well this is video editing only with numbers because <laughs> that's what it was right <laughs> well yeah right little zeros and ones you know yeah 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 no it was entirely different in in the approach and uh and you know just just entirely different. And then the fact that, you know, uh, you had more, you could put more information on, on the, on the tape, right? I mean, you could, you, you basically had uh, 80 minutes or 74 at the time as was, uh, capitals, uh, standards. So, uh, on, you know, on early albums like the beach boys, you could, people got real upset when you'd only put, you know, they would release one album but those albums were typically, you know, 15, 16 minute sides and, and, uh, people wanted more information. So <laughs> they felt for their money, they wanted a little more bang for their buck. So, um, right away the phone started ringing. And, uh, so then they started putting out, you know, two and, uh, three albums on one, on one disc. So they wouldn't have the complaints. Yeah. But you know, I know that there's the time limitation on vinyl, but there was also something that really worked with that because I think there's a um, attention span. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when you have a 40-minute album, and, and when I look back and all the ones that I love, they're between 35 and, you know, 42, 43 minutes. And then when you have something that goes longer than that, it's really easy to zone out and not really hear it. I look back at it and I think, well, it was a limitation, but in fact, it was one that really worked to everyone's advantage, I think. Oh, I think so, too. And I would tell my clients just, you know, up until I retired, uh, uh, if they, we were doing a, a CD mastering session and uh, they had a 35 or 40 minute program, I, I, would, I always encouraged it because, you know, people are going to play a record like that on a CD a lot more than they're going to play a 74, 75 minute CD. They just burn out on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just, I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, so, uh, and that's what I hear from a lot of the people when I ask them, you know, currently the young kids, what do you like so much about vinyl? You know, what's, what's the draw? And, and they like to be able to get their friends together and put on a, a record and, and sit down and listen to the whole side. Maybe it's, you know, 20 minutes or something, 18, 20 minutes long, and then turn it over and listen to the next side. They, and that's, that's the part they enjoy the, the streaming, uh, the music that just on files, that's just going on forever in a day. 
it's kind of almost background music, you know? Yeah. They, they do it other things while that, while that's playing. Whereas if they're listening to a vinyl record, they're actually making, taking time out. And it's a, it's a whole process, uh, that, uh, was the same that you and I enjoyed when we were young and our friends would call up and say, Hey, you got to hear this new doors album, you know? Yeah. And everybody run over there and, and take a seat and, check it out and play it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I remember that. You're saying that, you know, that there are younger people that in fact do that. And I've heard it. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it for myself, but I think it's really healthy. That's a good thing for music. If it happens like that. Yeah, I think it is too. And I mean, cause I, I would get young kids coming in all the time. They were totally interested in seeing how a record was cut and that whole process. Whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, nobody cared. I mean, no, we don't want to know that. What's the big draw? But now, you know, nowadays, everybody wants to know how a record's made. And part of that, when I would explain uh, the whole process, is is the limitations and the sides and, and, uh, and this type of thing. And, and I think they got it because, you know, it led to a better sounding album than just plain digital file. Yeah, right. Uh, you've seen a lot of things happen here. Why do you think vinyl has made a comeback? Well, I think it's one of them. One of the things is uh, uh, the the dynamics, the change in the sound, a little warmer sound. Uh, the other thing I think is uh, also the what we just talked about is the the people like they they get together. They hold an album. It's bigger. It's out. You know, they can read the credits. They can see the artwork. All of the things that we enjoyed about sitting down and having a little LP listening session are the same things that I hear from all the young folks when I ask them. It's and it's that it's that group participation. Come on over and let's listen to this. And we talk about it. And then we change the side and. And maybe we play it again or we pick the song we like the best. I just think it's all those things that we, excuse me, that we just uh, been talking about that they tell me that's what they like about a record because it's, and it, you know, there's something about being able to hold a record where everything now is a file and uh, you know, it's, yeah. there's nothing there, but it's on your phone, just a title, but, uh, or even a picture is the thumbnail size. And so to see the artwork and to see some of the stuff that was it, how it was intended, especially the older, the older uh, records that they bring back, some of the Blue Note stuff and, and things and how they originally were put out, they just, they really dig it, you know? Well, speaking of Blue Note, so you're noted for the jazz records that you cut, and obviously you've done a lot of that through your career. But you've also done lots of other things that are more modern and, and as modern as you can get. I'm just wondering, is your approach different depending on the genre of music that you're cutting? Well, my approach is the same. I, but however, I, I say that in, in, because I know the different formats have different requirements and need to sound differently. So with I approach it in the same way for mastering but I also know that if I'm doing a, a Pet Sounds record, I have I have different things I have to keep in mind that uh, people are expecting the record to sound like versus maybe uh, a jazz, a Blue Note album, uh, maybe a John Coltrane record or a Miles Davis record. 
the you know the low end or the bottom is going to be a little different so i deal with that in a different way uh, but i still try to be, keep the same approach uh give it as good a level that i can watch all for the sibilance and distortion areas and get it to sound as good and as natural as the original master sounded so the client and the, or the person that the the buyer that ends up getting it uh, is you know they put it on they go yeah that's that's that sounds that's the way it's supposed to sound and that's it's not you know muddied up or it's not the low end isn't all notched out or any of that stuff it's got everything that was intended to be on that record so but technically I use the same approach that I would on uh, on all the records uh, because you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to make them sound all the way same, but I am going to take that, that same uh, time and care to uh, to make sure that they sound as good as, as the master is, is intended to sound. How long does it take you to cut a record? And I know that there's the playing time, obviously, of the record, but in terms of prep time and, and everything else, what does it take to cut in terms of time? Oh, I can... I can do, uh, I can normally do, I could easily do, uh, well, I have done three albums in a day, but I've, I usually do uh, a two. Uh, I could do two uh, when times were busy, but uh, because you have shipping deadline as well, like five o'clock shipping deadline, and I usually would get started around 8.30 in the morning. So uh, I'd say probably about, you know, three and a half, four hours per record. By the time I run it down, and uh, this is from uh, this would be from mostly from the digital files that I have, as far as because a lot of those have been archived, so we don't use the tape. Uh, if it's coming from tape, it's going to take me longer, and then I'm probably going to just get one, maybe half of, half of another one done. With the files, it's a little quicker. Uh, why is that? Well, I was just going to say it, it's a little. Because when I get the files that have been archived and these guys, I'm talking about, uh, you know, where they take care of all the old tapes and, uh, and they've, they've cleaned up all the old splices and they've cleaned up all the edits and the, and the leader and, uh, and nothing, you know, when you're handling the tape for the first time in 10, 15 years, uh, all of the splices usually break on you. The, the paper leader always kind of breaks on you. So you end up repairing just to get it to play properly. So it's not, you don't, you don't hurt the tape at all. Uh, I it. Um, you know, yeah, that, that, that splicing tape that, the, that they made years ago for all of the tapes wasn't meant to last, but maybe 10 years. And, and so now you're pulling out records, you know, so like some of the old blue note stuff that I would get that Rudy did in the, in the fifties, uh, if it hadn't been, I can always tell right away if it had been t- taken care of and cleaned up a lot of times by me. Uh, but if it was someone else, uh, if it hadn't been, then you have to real be real, real gingerly uh, rewind it, make sure you fix all the splices and all the edits before you can even start to play the record or the, the master. That's what takes the time. You were at Capitol for a long time, what, 38 years? Is that what it was? Yeah, 30, 35 years, actually. Uh, I took three years off and had my own business for a little while, but uh, uh, then I came back, and I was still 
go down there and cut records for him because they, while they trog at the time was getting ready to retire. And, uh, so, uh, I would fly down there from Sacramento and cut vinyl for on the weekends for those guys. And one of my trips down there, when I came back, I, they said, Hey, why not? You want to, uh, come back to work? And I was running out of money and I liked it there. I knew everybody. I didn't go, I didn't burn any bridges. So, uh, I came back and, um, so that was from, 93 to 96, I was gone. So. Okay, okay. But that being said, you were at Capitol for a really long time. But you know all the other people in the mastering side of the business for sure, and, and you know how independents work and what's going on with them. But Capitol was a completely different experience. You were in an environment that was way different than most other mastering engineers. Yes. So how was that for you then? I, I mean, there's a certain amount of security that's involved in, in that, but did you have the same freedom as everybody else was, was, you know, had in the business or did you think better or worse than being an indie? No, it was, uh, it was very challenging. I liked it because it really, you know, even from working, uh, prior to going to the tower, I went into that building in 1986 uh, in December, I worked down the street at, at EMI Liberty Records, which was at Sunset and Orange. And uh, that, again, that was different. That was probably a little more like what you're uh, referring to uh, in the way that people, um, you know, there just, there wasn't as much going on. I mean, at Capitol, there's the best artists in the world come through that door every day. And it's not uncommon for you, you know, you to be called on and say, um, "Hey, so and so needs needs some edits done right now. Can you do, can you help them out?" And you go, "Okay, sure." You know, and you just do it. Uh, so uh, it it's it's very challenging. Um, it you know it really makes you stay on your toes uh, because these people are you know people that you know, uh, people like the Beach Boys and and uh, you know, major artists like that are coming in and, and they're asking for an acetate on this, or they want to, they want to do this kind of a record and they want, you know, they want to have a certain sound and they want to talk to you about how their record's going to be. And, um, one day I was cutting pet sounds for an, a, a, for a release for a special release. And, uh, the, some of the Beach Boys came in when the producer brought them in because we were working on the, um, the release of the, I think it was the 25th anniversary of that record. So for me to be cutting their record while they were watching me was really kind of surrealistic. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'd been a fan for for a long time. So, you know, and right away, Al Jardine says, oh, I, w I need an acetate of that. I got to have that. They just, they still love the vinyl. So I said, sure, I'll do it, you know, and uh, so things like that happen where they never would happen at, a lot of studios, uh, you just don't have the access to the talent that comes through the doors. Yeah. Do you have a project that's the most memorable? Oh, I, I <laughs> that's like when a lot of people ask me, what, what's the favorite, the most favorite record you ever cut? And I, I, I can't really ever answer that, but, uh, one of the most memorable was the, was being able to cut that, uh, the blue note catalog, um, uh, the early, the early catalog, uh, all the Rudy Van Gelder tapes before they did the Rudy Van Gelder uh, series and uh, program reissues, and where he 
he remastered his own vinyl. Um, I cut uh, a lot of that uh, Blue Note. Uh, those Blue Note releases, uh, That's that's got to be right there on the top of the list. Mm. As I, yeah. it, it's just beautiful. The, the music is just amazing, and the talent that came out of that small little period of time in our life, uh, it just continued to blow my mind. I mean, just like, you know, when you... Duke Ellington and you know Cannonball and uh, Miles Davis and and it was fun because you know some of the some of the engineers the older engineers that were they've retired way before I did uh, they you know one guy knew Cannonball and he would tell me stories about how he would come over and you know hang out and do things even if he wasn't in a session and, and stuff like that so um, those are the kind of things that make you know, you just knew happened all the time around there. Was there one that was particularly difficult to cut? Mm, no, not really. Most of those, most of the ones that I'm I'm talking to you about, uh, were done intentionally as an album should have been. They know that in other words, they were like 18, 20 minute sides. Mm-hmm. The the harder ones to cut are the ones that, that currently people want to put out where they're 23, 24 minute sides. Or one time I had a group come in and they had a 26 minute side and it was all reggae. Yeah. Well, that's all bottom end and <laughs> you know eats up all the land. I told them the I told them all the pitfalls and that they weren't going to like their record. But they insisted I cut it and so I cut it and then they came back a month later and said, "Oh, you were right. We didn't. We don't like it. We'll." take off some songs and they made it, you know, a regular record. So, but I don't have one particular one that, uh, I can think of right now that gave me trouble, uh, or was difficult, you know? Okay. Here's something else then a little geeky. Did your lathe ever get updated or upgraded or was it basically the same the whole time you were there? Oh, they were always the the guys in the shop were, would always uh, always check the calibration and, and always update it. And I had I had a few things that would go awry. And uh, then I uh, and well at that time uh, we had the other lathe in, in the in the storage, so they went and would get the parts from that and swap it out right quick while they fixed the broken part that I had. But uh, you know. Essentially, it was the same lathe, but it was it was we it was constantly being, uh, and they still are uh, being you know upgraded and checked and checked for speed and the bearings and and where the calibration is supposed to be for the plant. Uh, so it's it's a it's an ongoing uh, service that you have to be. You just can't let them just keep running. <laughs> what monitors were you using? I had the, the uh, PMCs for my uh, small monitors, and then I had the... Uh, Augsburgers? <laughs> the George Augsburger designed my room. Oh, um, okay. Westlake? Yeah, Westlake Audio. Yeah, thank oh, you. <laughs> okay. That's unusual. I wouldn't have thought that you would have been using Westlakes, but that being said, I guess it's like anything else. You get used to it, and, and it really doesn't matter. As long as you're used to it, you can make it work. Well, I got used to it. Exactly. They were old school. They're big. They're, you know, uh, they had the big horns and everything up there. And it's, it's all what you kind of get used to. I lived in that room for, oh, you know, 30 some years. So I just got used to it. And it's much different than mastering rooms, uh, today that you see the new ones, you know? 
Now, that being said, now that you've retired from capital, you're still working and you're still doing projects as they come to you. Where are you doing them? I haven't done any yet. <laughs> oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't done any, uh, I haven't, I've just been kind of recuperating and, uh, catching up on my rest and so forth. So I haven't done anything yet. Uh, uh, I'll probably do some stuff at Capitol, uh, because you know, they've, you know, they're not going to change the room around, uh, essentially too much. And so, uh, I'll probably be asked to, uh, do some stuff over there and work on that lathe. You know, it just it kind of depends. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet because it's still a little new into in my uh, in my retirement, and so uh, and then I plan on also doing you know uh, some panel working on sitting on some panels and discussing vinyl uh, cutting and and different things. Uh, I've been asked to do some maybe some little bit of teaching and that type of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, I I want to kind of try to go into that zone. Uh, I really have uh, I've been doing it quite such a long time. I didn't really plan on opening up my own room because that would just really equal working again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> putting all that energy, putting all that energy into getting clients and building up a business. And you know, at this stage of my life, uh, uh, you know, how much longer could I do it? I I, I don't want I don't want to. You know, I'd rather go out on a good note. I don't want, I don't want to have a put out a bad record or I don't want to have anything like that. But uh, I'd like to share my knowledge and uh, be able to, you know, help and do whatever I can to to let people know how things should be done. Sure. Okay. So one last thing: public nuisance. Tell me about that. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, well, that was a band that I was in uh, since it started out as a surf band in the eighth grade, and then we developed into our. Uh, uh, the public nuisance was the same guys and we, we played together and we ended up doing our record. We got signed for, with CBS Equinox records and, um, under Terry Melcher. And so we came to LA and we did an album and, um, then at the last minute, nothing came out. It got shelved and we were all disappointed and, and we're real frustrated, uh, because nothing happened. So, we we did some auditions and things like that, but then after that, the band kind of broke up. And then, um, lo- long story short, uh, many years later, there was a guy in Sacramento uh, that was doing a uh, a band a, a CD compilation of you know garage bands of the '60s from Sacramento, and um, and he asked if he heard one of our songs and he liked it, so he goes, "Hey, you guys got any more?" And we said, "Yeah, we've got a whole album," and so we released it. Uh, on our own because we had the tapes and everything. And so, uh, and it sold, we sold the first 1500 CDs. So then we printed up some more and then sold those. And then at that point, it kind of got a little expensive to reproduce the booklet. So, uh, but with then in in the interim, uh, Jack White had gotten a hold of it and he was uh, white stripes. They were covering one of our songs or a few of our songs. And, uh, and one of our fans told us about it, and so then, and then uh, Third Man Records uh, got a hold of us and asked uh, asked our label. Or we had had one guy label in Sacramento uh, if we were going to do any more, and he said no, and we said no, and he said, uh, well, we're interested in the, in signing. So they got a hold of us, and we signed a, a record contract with Third Man, and then I said, well, 
will sign it if I can cut my own record. And they said, oh, sure, we know who you are. And so I cut my own record. <laughs> and uh, What was that like? Then, uh, uh, oh, I was my worst client. <laughs> <laughs> I was my, where I drove myself nuts that day. I can't, I always remember that day because, you know, you're just trying, you know, you just go crazy. So, but I got it done and it came out fine and everybody was happy with it. So, uh, but yeah, then, then we're still on third man. And, and, uh, one of my things that I would tell my clients up until the very end was, you know, Hey, listen, if I can sign a record contract in my sixties for something I did when I was 19 years old, you can't tell me that you're going to be given up. You know, <laughs> that was my mantra. You don't give up. You, you keep going cause you never know what is going to happen. And, uh, that's what's happened with third man. And so that's one of the things they've asked me if I would like to, uh, when they heard I was retiring, uh, go back to the plant there in Detroit and help. They're going to host me and I'm going to do some talking on vinyl and working with some of their cutters and things like that. Oh, that's great. Very cool. Yeah. That'll be a lot of fun. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, those guys are terrific. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, I still plan on, you know, doing, being in touch with the vinyl and, and, and making, making sure that I'm still, you know, part of the audio scene in the community and, uh, try to give as much information that I can to help others, uh, that haven't had the time and experience that I have had, uh, been lucky enough to have had, a, in, in the, in the field, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ron, one last question. Yes. You've been in the business for a really long time that being said, you've been in a corporate environment and that shields you a little bit from having to do business, but it doesn't mean you're shielded completely. So what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or someone imparted to you? Well, I think, I think it's always, you need to listen to what people have to say. If, if you, if you're asking for advice on a, on a particular project, how, how it should be done, then uh, you should take notes on what the engineer is telling you. If if you're not sure how a record is going to be, maybe uh, make contact. Like, in other words, uh, I had no problem with folks calling me and saying, hey, I've got this record I want to master. I want to bring it in for vinyl. And I would say, well, how long is it? And they would tell me it's you know, way over 24, 25 minutes long. And I would say, well... I would suggest that you either lose some of the songs because it's okay for your record to be a little different than your CD or your files, but uh, at the same time, uh, do your record justice. If you want to show yourself off, make sure it's a nice, you know, playable side that the engineer, whoever cuts it, not doesn't have to be me, but whoever cuts it can get a good cut, get a good level on it, and the listener and the guy, the person that purchases it are going is going to be satisfied not disappointed mm. or you can also take another direction and you can you know i would suggest then well then if you want all your songs on there then make a double album yeah right 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 and so they they would do that you know they would listen to me on that way uh but uh i would just try to make sure i give them all the all of the ideas that we that we could have, you know, have, and, and that could be available so they could 
see their options. Uh, that was the biggest thing because, um, you know, truly it's all new to all of the all of the the new artists out there because they don't know the vinyl world and they're born in the digital age. So I find, you know, half of the time I would be educating and uh, uh, telling everyone what they should and what they shouldn't expect. You know, a lot of times they just assume, oh, I can just do that. And then you have to say, well, no, you know, let's just say, for example, doing your record is going to take probably from the time you walk into cutting room to the time you've received your final product is going to be three to four months. And so they're not expecting that. In other words, I did all my Christmas albums this last year in May <laughs> just so they could make sure they had everything on the shelf, you know? Yeah. Uh, so some of these folks, uh, literally they're planning their release party and they're just, they're way in a whole different direction and they should be asking those kind of questions. How long is this going to take? Uh, what do I need to do to prepare for this? I want to have it out by a certain time. Uh, will I make it? Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,